Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including... CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, the host, Kevin Randall. Today, I think we have a special treat. I have on the line with me a former member of Project Blue Book, 
Now, in the past, when we've talked to people about Project Blue Book, or we've talked to people who were allegedly with Project Blue Book, what we found out is that the um, uh, person was probably a uh, officer who had it as an additional duty at a at an Air Force base. He didn't. He wasn't there at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. I have with me today uh, Carmen Morano, who was on the Project Blue Book staff at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, serving with. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hector Quintanella uh, at Wright Patterson, and he, I guess, was there when they closed down Project Blue Book. So we have this fellow with us. He is uh, trained in physics, and he co-authored a government publication in 1968 for the U.S. Bureau of Mines entitled "Optical Properties of Glass: Transmission Losses of Eyepieces Used in Mine Environment." So it's not that he's an uneducated man. He's a highly trained man. He's a former Air Force officer, and he is the one that provided a great deal of the material that we have discussed in the past here on uh, the Socorro case and things like that to Rob Morano, or not Rob Morano, Rob Mercer, who is uh, with the Miami Valley UFO Society, and we'll be talking to Rob in a couple of weeks. So, uh, welcome to the program, Mr. Morano. Uh, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Anything I left out there that you'd like to add? <laughs> I don't know about how highly trained I was or competence, but uh, I'm here. <laughs> okay. Well, let me. As I told you, I think when we when we talked on the phone, I have gotten a number of questions from the listeners about this because they're excited about having someone from Project Blue Book on there. And the very first question, and it's kind of one that's easy to deal with, is how did you become involved with Blue Book? Uh, did you have a choice of duty assignments or they just say you're going to Project Blue Book and that's the way it is? Uh, basically, it was you're going to Project Blue Book and that's the way it is. I was assigned to Foreign Technology Division in the fall of 1967. And they came over to me and uh, said, hey, we're putting you over in Blue Book. They might have asked me whether I cared or not, but it sounded like an interesting assignment. So I, you say it's an, an interesting assignment, so it wasn't something that you were dead set against. It was just, hey, uh, you're available, go over to Blue Book, and you said, okay, fine. Basically. I was excited about it when I first went over. Did you have any background in UFOs prior to that? Were you interested in the phenomenon, or was it just something that passed <laughs> passed by you? Um, I was mildly interested in extraterrestrial life, and I had read uh, Carl Sagan's book uh, uh, on SETI. And yes. um, I can't remember what the title of it was at this point, but... It was something that was mildly interesting, but I, I didn't have any particular, you know, any any deep and abiding interest in it. Just you didn't happened. have a you didn't have a feeling one way or another are UFOs extraterrestrial? Are they just natural phenomena, misidentifications? You didn't have any bias one way or another. No, uh, no, I would have loved to have found something while I was there that that I could have said yes, this is extraterrestrial, but I I didn't. I didn't run on to anything in my span of time that I was there that I said, yeah, this this looks like something that that is not of this earth. Did you make so many was, Did you make many uh, trips off off Wright Patterson? Did you go to the scene of uh, UFO sightings very often? Not very frequently. We were a real small office. There were just five of us there, um, and uh, generally speaking, I would get about 
I'd say two to three sightings a day, and that was my responsibility then to evaluate them. So you mean, there wasn't a lot of time that you could dedicate to any particular case. When you say two or three sightings a day, you mean coming through the mail or calls from Air Force bases or civilians trying to report UFOs? Most of them were from the Wright-Patterson area in Project Blue Book. You know, we were we were the site for the Wright-Patterson, Ohio area there. So normally uh, the vast majority of the cases we got were from right in around Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, Pennsylvania kind of area. But we occasionally got other people who called us up and reported them. We weren't allowed to investigate unless they were officially reported to the Air Force. And we investigated if they reported directly to us and completed the forms, and or if one of the local bases throughout the United States each had a UFO office. Let, let me interrupt you here. Let me interrupt you here. We're going to have to take a quick break. I think I'm a little bit uh, late on time here. So we'll be right back after these messages. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at www.drgibbswilliams.com. This is Johanna Carroll, host of Dialogue with Divinity on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. While walking along Kanapali Beach in Maui this past year, I kept discovering all these shells and coral in the shape of hearts. My Dialogue with Divinity was very simple. Do you want me to do a retreat to heal people's hearts in Maui next year? And of course, the answer was yes. 
As a master spiritual teacher, I am offering you a neat retreat called Rise, May 8th through the 12th, 2017, and the chance of a lifetime to rest at a five-star resort for five days and experience a spiritual renewal of your heart and soul. Kanapali is one of the top five beaches in the world. This stunning resort has undergone a $40 million renovation. I walked the entire property, checked out the room choices on your behalf, and I must say it is stunning. Our conference room faces the ocean with sliding glass doors. Maui is known as Mother Maui because it is a soft, gentle, healing energy. In the embrace of Mother Maui, you will feel yourself rising from the limitations of an ordinary life to an extraordinary journey of peace, bliss, and harmony, a greater sense of clarity. Our RISE retreat ignites renewal in the sacred elements of air, water, earth, fire, and wind. I have sleep apnea, and I used to struggle with CPAP. Until recently, I hadn't had a good night's sleep since 2005. Do you remember 2005? We used cell phones like actual phones, and everyone wanted life hacks. Here's a life hack for anyone who struggles with CPAP. Get Inspire. It's a sleep apnea treatment that works inside your body to give you comfortable, restful sleep. Learn more at InspireSleep.com. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at InspireSleep.com. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. There's plenty of free time to enjoy all that Maui has to offer. A small deposit is required now to reserve your space as this retreat, it will sell out. For more details, please go to johannacarroll.com and register today. Aloha, and I'll see you in mystical Maui. And we are back with Carmen Morano, who was a um, Project Blue Book officer at the end of the term of Project Blue Book. And we were talking about how he or Project Blue Book uh, received the cases that they looked into uh, back there in 19, the late 1960s. So you were saying you mainly got your reports from the area around Project uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base as opposed to Project Blue Book. I would say the majority of them came in from around Wright-Patterson. We we did get cases nationwide when one of the local investigators couldn't identify something and he needed help. He he might send it on through to us, or people in other states might contact us directly. So, um, if I understand what you're saying to me, is that if the um, say a report came from Cheyenne, Wyoming. And they would call. They would call Francis E. Warren Air Force Base, and there might be a, a, a local officer assigned to investigate it. And if he was unable to make an identification, then he would contact you at Wright Patterson. He, he might do that. He he had his, he had a lot of different options. He could he could solve it. He could leave it there. You know, if he could say, "Well, it's unidentified," in which case we never really got a copy of it. 
or he could pass it on through to us, and then in which case it went in our case files. There were there were lots of sightings reported to the Air Force that never made it to Project Blue Book. You when you say when you say uh, reported to the Air Force, do you mean to ATEC or just to an Air Force base? To an um, Air Force base, other than other than Wright Pat. If it came into Wright Pat, it came into Project Blue Book. Okay, so the, you were the guys to investigate if it was a, a report into Wright Pat, but there were other guys assigned around the country as a additional duty as the UFO officer. That's correct. And they might forward a case to us for evaluation, or they might solve it and keep it at the base, or people throughout the United States might call us directly, in which case we handle it. When you were at, at Blue Book, and uh, Dr. Hynek talked about this, um, that there were cases that never made it to Blue Book, they went elsewhere, especially cases that were really hot, really exciting, never made it to Blue Book um, did you notice anything like that, that cases may have bypassed you guys at Blue Book? Bypassed us to go where? Uh, to a different a different organization. At the time, there was something called Project Moondust, which had a UFO component to it. Uh, and in fact, there's a, couple, there's a number of cases in the Project Blue Book files dated from 1960 marked Project Moondust. And so uh, there's always been this idea that there was another organization somewhere that investigated these things. Uh, Hynek uh, alluded to it. I think there was a General Bolander in a memo said uh, that um, uh, some cases were not part of the Blue Book system. So were you aware of anything like that? or No, I wasn't aware of anything like that. I'm not aware. You know, if they got involved... You know, I never saw any evidence there was any external organization involved in anything that I received. Nor so, was I aware of any sighting that bypassed us to go to a higher level, if you will, for yeah. evaluation. Or, so I, I'm not aware of anything like that. General Exxon, who was the base commander there, and for people who don't understand the military, the base commander is not the, the guy in charge of everything. He's commander of the facilities. He's like a mayor. And in fact, in the Army, they, they now call it the mayor's cell. Uh, the base commander there in the 1960s was a fellow named Arthur Exxon, General Exxon, who I talked to a couple of times. And he suggested that periodically there would be a flight in from outside, from Washington, D.C. or somewhere else. The guys would come into Wright Field and then he would dispatch them off into uh, UFO investigations. Were you aware of anything like that at all? Not at all. No, sir. Nor, nor did anybody in the office seem to be aware of anything like that. You know, I never heard any rumors of it if, if, you know, if that were the case. I was completely unaware of it, and and if there was someone else there, say Colonel Quentin Nella, if he knew of something like that, he never mentioned it. And if something like that was going on and was classified high enough, he probably would not have mentioned it to you. Is that correct? Well, I, I don't know. Um, I was cleared for secret information, uh, and I might even have had a top secret at that time. Okay. I moved from that office over into a building where I had top-secret information at my disposal all the time. So, um, you know, it would have had to have been uh, top-secret special access for me not, you know, 
so I, if if I hadn't been allowed to see it. Okay. Uh, special access, you have to have need to know. Yes. To see, and it's very highly restricted. Well, let's. Uh, you were there at the end of Project Blue Book, yes. and I remember. I'd been back from Vietnam for just weeks when they announced that Blue Book was closing in December of 1969. You were there at the very end of, of Blue Book. Was there anything special that happened there? Was there, or were you just busy winding up uh, the organization and closing the files? Anything interesting that was going on at that time? Not really. Once Dr. Condon issued his report and then the Air Force decided to close us down, it took us I don't know, several weeks at least, I would say, to pack up all the files, box them, and get them ready for shipping, and then send them out. And they went to um, Maxwell Air Force Base, the Air Force Archives? I believe so, yes, sir. I I say that because at the time I was in, uh, I guess it was 1976, I was in Air Force ROTC, and there was a circular that came around and told us that the Project Blue Book files had been declassified and were available for research at Maxwell Air Force Base. So I managed to get a magazine assignment to go down and look through them. <laughs> so I had a chance to look at them at Maxwell. The vast, the vast yes, go ahead. The weren't classified. There were only a few classified cases, and um, the vast majority of those were of Navy ships in the Pacific, and the exact name of the ship, the location, and the time was classified. But all of those ships that had unidentified sightings, uh, every one that I can recall when I was there, certainly, were ICBMs uh, launched out of Point Magoo or Vandenberg going into Kwajalein. Okay. Well, I, I will say, looking through the Blue Book files, that I saw very few that were stamped secret or confidential, so... Uh, so all of the ones that weren't classified were open basically to the public. We had numbers of reporters who came through and looked at cases. And, uh, in fact, to make their life easier, I put together a big, uh, all of the cases that had photographs associated with them, I put them into a big binder so they could leaf through and find a case that they liked. You know, the photograph was interesting, and then we could go to the files and pull the files for them. So they they showed up and had no restrictions on what they could see in the Blue Book files? Uh, on the unclassified files, that's that's correct. And the, and the um, only... And the only ones you remember being classified were things that, that dealt with national security. And by that, we mean the missile launches you were talking about or the ICBM tests, as opposed to uh, the UFO being the a, a event of national security. That's correct. One of the, uh, the, the vast majority of them, I can't say that they were all that because, quite truthfully, I never went through all the, all the classified files. But the vast majority of them were Navy sightings and they were ICBM sightings. Uh, this, this case from Minot uh, actually had a classified uh, rating on it when it first came in. And the, this is Minot in 1968. Yes, that's correct. Which was a, um, a ground visual, a radar sighting, and, and uh, some other components like that that were very interesting. And I, th- I think I mentioned... Um, I was looking at my book, Project Blue Book Exposed, reading that so I would be conversant with it so we could talk about that a little bit. And I came across your name a couple of times, having 
produced memos for the records or things like that about what was going on in the investigation. But you never went to Minot yourself. You dealt with the officers there at Minot who were investigating and talked to them on the telephone. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, I don't remember if Colonel Quentin Ella went up there. I don't think he did. But uh, Colonel Quentin Ella handled the evaluation on that particular case. Okay. Well, I, I think based on what it... I think based on what's in the file, he didn't go either. He talked to a number of the officers there at the base and when the base at Minot um, himself on the telephone as well. So you, you were discussing what was seen there. And, and uh, do you remember much about that case? Uh, some, but, but not a tremendous amount, I don't suppose. Uh, my recollection of the case was it was extremely confusing that uh, there was a local UFO investigator out there at the base who was handling it, and uh, we, we would get information in about who saw what and where were they uh, in, in increments. And sometimes uh, the information that was previously provided and then subsequently provided on the forms by the person himself were in conflict. And I know from my standpoint, one of the biggest problems that I had with that case was that there were so many people involved and the information that I was provided, I couldn't figure out where they were on the map and what direction they were looking and exactly what time they were. So I didn't know, you know, in many ways, I didn't, I kept finding out different people as time went on. And I couldn't tell where they were and what direction they were looking. We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for two fifty. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just two dollars. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. A combo meal, single item at regular price. Love getting prices that are lower than low on food that's fresher than fresh. Then shop at Kroger. We give you more ways to save on the fresh you love with tools like the Kroger app, where you can find personalized coupons on top of weekly sales, giving you prices that are lower than the everyday low. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's the big $10 sale. So mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. So we've got, in, the, in this case, we've got people on the ground. I think some maintenance people involved, some people at a missile silo area involved. We have people in the tower involved, and we have an air a B-52 crew who are, who are involved. There's a radar component, meaning the object was seen on radar. And um, so, I so don't it. Is there anybody in a tower being involved other than relaying traffic? Hiding uh, from the from the tower folks, but you know, maybe I've forgotten it. There seemed to be a, a, a group in the tower who had uh, were directing the the B fifty two crew where to look to see the the objects an orange object I think is what they how they described yeah. it. Yeah, I can, uh, I can remember that uh, that the tower directing the B fifty two, but I don't remember that the tower saw anything. Then we'll say 
<laughs> for the sake of clarity, we'll say that the tower was involved in the fact that they were communicating with the B-52 about it. And they were relaying information about maybe what would what would seen. And, and one of the things that struck me about this is in the case file, there's a mention of a radar sighting and it says weather's radar as opposed to weather radar. And it was very confusing. And I, I always wondered if there was a site at Minot called Weathers, Weathers, which had a radar facility. Do you remember anything like that at all? And I realize we're going back 50 years to try to figure this out. I don't think so. And, you know, I, uh, my recollection, again, it's, it's been a long, long time, but I don't remember a second radar being involved in the sighting. They had the radar on the aircraft, on the B-52, and it picked up an item, some, uh, what they considered to be an unidentified uh, object, and it followed them for some extended period of time. Well, let's let's do this. When we come back, we'll we'll see if we can figure out this radar component of it, right. and talk a little bit about more, more about this. Uh, on my blog, I often put up information that is consistent with what we're talking about on the program for a little bit more information about what's going on. So that's www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. So if you want additional information, you can take a look there. We will be back right after this. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka, 
join me on the Science of Magic radio program dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. And we are back with former Project Blue Book officer, Carmen Morano, and we were talking about the Minot case. And this is a case where there were, as we've mentioned, people on the ground who saw things in the sky. There was a B-52 crew involved. There was a radar component to the sighting. And, I, and I'm with uh, Mr. Morano on this. I can't really figure out the radar component either because there are notes in the file that suggest there was a ground-based radar but the radar is called Weather's Radar, and you wonder if this is a weather radar that's part of the uh, equipment in the B-52 or if this is a site on the ground. And um, I, have, I couldn't figure out whether there were two radars involved or not. There was also another component where the aircraft uh, reported a failure of the communication system in the radar for a period of time when the UFO seemed to be close to them. Um, so we've got all these things going on. And we've got the guy here who investigated it and came up with some some solutions for it. So we were talking about the radars. Uh, I think when we talked about this uh, a couple of a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that there were two radar systems on the B fifty two at the time. Yes, there. That's my understanding. Uh, there's uh, my understanding is is in the front of the the B fifty two you have a. Uh, a weather slash, um, oh, what would he, what is the name for it? A, a weather so radar. Forward, uh, they're doing their tracking, you know, their their guidance kind of thing. So yes. So it's, it's a weather slash tracking kind of radar in the, in the front end of the plane. And then in the back end of the plane, they have a, uh, a higher frequency radar that does tracking, uh, uh, my recollection of the B-52 is it had big twin machine guns coming out out the tail of it. And I believe on the ground, sometimes if they left that radar on, it was quite disconcerting. If you walk by the back end of the, the B-52 and 
those those big machine guns tracked you as you walked across. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I was I was going to say that that on the helicopters we had a high frequency um, antennas on some of them, and if the if the radio was on, you could get burns if you got too close to it. But it was nothing like the uh, guns tracking you as you walked by the B fifty two. I've never been around a B fifty two much. You know, I've seen them in the air, but that's my understanding of it. And uh, I had asked my brother who flew on B fifty twos you know, whether both radars would, were typically on. And he never gave me a definitive answer. My takeaway from it was, was generally, yes, they were on, but they didn't have to both be on at the same time. So uh, we've got this sighting going on at, at Minot. What conclusions did you draw about that? Well, my conclusion was it was extremely confusing that there were so many people involved uh the the radar sighting was probably that from the aircraft was probably the most sensational portion of it uh and that uh we got the tapes of that sighting at wright patterson and i sent it over to foreign technology division to their radar analysis group and their group, my recollection was their group came back and said they thought it was radar malfunction. Okay, so, I was I was looking at the uh, the write up on this thing to see if it, if I had explained what it was either uh, in there because um, there were a number of different explanations uh, for the um, the ground visual sightings, and one of them was the Star Vega. Uh, one of them, I think, was Sirius, um, and there was now a... Those, some of the sightings, it seemed to me, I glanced over that case after you and I talked, and uh, at one point it implied that people on the ground couldn't see the stars. Um, that was not the information that I had at the time or was working from, and that it was clear on the ground, all, my recollection, again so long ago that it was slightly foggy on the ground and so on the ground itself visual sighting was was a little a little difficult at times but when i remember that on the uh, the forms that i did get back where i could figure out where they were looking at where they saw an object particularly for a light for a, an extended period of time when i plotted up on the on the star chart i i kept coming up with in those general areas where they were looking either either vega the we're going family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pounds. i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer or i'm sorry serious uh i don't i don't know what the second one was but i know Merc mercury or venus and um and uh, Sirius were the two big ones that people would see stars and and misidentify them. And, and I'll, 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 I'll break in here and say that I am astonished by the number of people who are fooled by Venus, especially when it's at its brightest. And they will see lights coming down from it and think there's searchlights, um, 
playing across the ground and all kinds of things like that. And I've investigated any number of cases where they what they were looking at was Venus at its at its brightest and being being fooled by it. And I'm just stunned that people are uh, fooled by Venus, even in today's environment, but they certainly are. Um, I think that the case file also suggested that there was a layer, an inversion layer over there that was causing a magnification type effect on the stars and gave them a little bit of an unusual look. That was my understanding, which is there was a heavy temperature inversion that night. And I know that uh, when you get temperature inversions, particularly if you can see beyond the horizon, so uh, sometimes you can you actually see an object that's below the horizon and it distorts it tremendously, changes the color. I remember there was a sighting from Ilsen Air Force Base, Alaska, where guys in the tower who were familiar, they were there every night, and uh, they actually saw the moon below the horizon and reported it as a, a UFO. And my recollection was they were sort of embarrassed about it after I, I found it. But, you know, I think the... The, the point being that during an inversion, it can distort, change colors, make uh, stars scintillate, you know, the, the changing colors. And if you stare at a star long enough, or at least my experience is that it tends to look like it's moving around sort of uh, brownian motion, so to speak, random motion with, with sort of a, an area where you see it mostly. It doesn't it doesn't go too far, but you'll think it's maybe moving to the side a little. Well, that's called that's called autokinesis, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just happen to right. know that one of the many things that I know that is virtually useless to anybody else. But people staring at a point of light. Me, I didn't know the term for it. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, people staring I, at a point I of there light. Was a trooper once who chased Venus for a uh, couple hundred miles. Uh, well, that's that was used at the opening of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie, uh, sort of a, a representation of that. And I'm I'm not really sure that he was chasing Venus, given some of the other people who were involved in that. But that's that's a whole other. Okay. I, I I didn't evaluate it. It was just one of the cases I had heard about when I went there. <laughs> well, I, and the reason you and I got in contact is uh, you had sent a great deal of material to uh, Rob Mercer. From, from your days in Blue Book. And I was kind of curious, how did you end up with all that information? Uh, why wasn't that shipped off to Maxwell at the same time? Uh, it was never part of official case files, or it was just okay. stuff that had been uh, Xeroxed. It was basically, I inherited the desk and the materials from the guy from before me, who was chief analyst, and he inherited it from the guy before him. And so I had all this stuff on my desk, and I had my choice. Basically, I could throw it away, or I could pack it up and keep it. And uh, I said, I think I'll just keep it. This stuff is sort of interesting. Maybe I'll go back and reread it someday. But I never did. So it was virtually <laughs> almost so, sight unseen until I, I gave it to Rob. So it wasn't really official files, but it no. was material that was based on the official files and make contained copies of things in the official files. That's correct. And it might have had, for instance, uh, a lot of sightings that I got reported to me were from aerial advertisers. And I'm not sure, but I remember I had a list of aerial advertisers for the tri-state area. 
and you know all the telephone numbers. So if I got something I suspected was aerial advertising, I'd call up the local aerial advertiser in that area. And generally speaking, if I called them, I sort of located what what they were seeing. You know, if you saw a bunch of rotating lights or something like that, that almost always turned out to be aerial advertisers. And where it was, it would go across the sky and then turn. Well, I, the the thing that interests me, just from I guess my eclectic background, uh, did you work a normal duty day, uh, what seven thirty to four or whatever? Did you ever get calls in the middle of the night about a hot UFO sighting or anything like that? Um, well, uh, generally speaking, I worked longer than a normal eight-hour day. Uh, uh, so, you know, I might be in the office until uh, 7.30 at night or so. So, uh, but uh, I don't remember getting any calls in the middle of the night. Maybe this one from Minot. Well, I doubt that. I, I doubt that was even in the middle of the night. Um, so very few. But since I did work... Um, long hours, occasionally I would get calls after duty hours with uh, meteor sightings or fireballs, you know, mostly meteor sightings. Well, the meteor sightings are kind of interesting. Um, and you had, you and I had talked a little bit about the Zon 4 reentry, Zon, the Zon 4 being a Soviet satellite that uh, reentered in March of 1968 and sparked some UFO sightings. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, fairly interesting. It was a uh, nuclear-powered satellite. Well, I guess a number of satellites have nuclear power plants, and so uh, it, it decayed. Auger, you know, it, it came in from the west to the east, and it broke up into, I believe, four parts. And I got reports from across the nation, and some people who saw it. I can remember drew like a rocket ship with fire coming out the back and portholes, where which were some of the the pieces of the satellite that were burning up, and even like rivets on the rocket ship. And to me, it was really interesting from the standpoint of what people could structure around something they were seeing. And you know, they they were they were being perfectly honest to me. That's what they thought they saw. That they had structured, you know, like the the fins on the rocket ship and and the rivets, and uh, and I know Dr. Condon, in his report, I'm pretty sure he cited that Zon Four case as one as one of the best or possibly the best documented case that we had in our files. The interesting thing about that is it it um, harks back to the Charles Whitted case from 1948, where they too saw a cigar-shaped craft with square windows on it, and the Zon 4 people reported the same thing. I looked at um, meteor, um, something called Meteor Compilation on YouTube, and it showed the breakup of meteors as they came in. People had been able to see or, or um, videotape, which struck me as uh, probably the inspiration for some of these things, the way they broke up and came down. But we're going to have to take a quick break here and come back with our final segment of... Uh, our discussion here. So we will be back right after this talking to Carmon Morano about his stint in Project Blue Book. So stick around.
As host of Dialogue with Divinity, I am thrilled to join the Exxon Broadcast Network and their growing number of affiliates. My quest for a connection to the divine ignited my successful career path as an international spiritual counselor for over 40 years and author of four books and well-known metaphysical educator. My clients call me their spiritual mama. So my job is to offer you a radio show to help you grow spiritually with wisdom and get specific tools from guests who are experts in their field. Tune into Dialogue with Divinity and be part of the conversation with spirit. My goal, your happy soul. For more information, please visit my website at johannacarroll.com. Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life is no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying, is available on Amazon and at stores worldwide wherever books are sold.
And we are back for the final segment here. We're talking to Carmen Romano, who uh, Morano, I'm sorry, Carmen Morano, who uh, was talking to us about the Zon 4 reentry. This is a Soviet satellite that broke up. And as we were breaking away, I mentioned this thing from YouTube called Meteor Compilation. If you look at that, you see these bright meteors breaking up. And if you, if you look at that, you can see how as the thing breaks up, it strings out, and it gives the impression of a lighted cockpit and a series of windows behind it. So you can understand how people who got a quick look at this might misinterpret it into some kind of a structured craft. And what is interesting about this is we, we know what the Zon 4 was. We know this is the explanation. We got those sorts of drawings from the people who reported the UFO component of it. And we look at the Childs Witted case from July of 1948, and I know my partners in uh, the U world of UFO are annoyed with me for this, but if you look at that and you look at the drawings made by uh, Childs and Witted, and they were airline pilots who saw something coming at them late at night as they were uh, on a commercial flight, thought it was first was an Army jet plane coming toward them, and then reported these cigar-shaped objects with the square windows on it. And at the time, it was written off initially as a meteor, or a bolide, extremely bright meteor. And then the, um, I guess the officers at, at, at that time, it had been Project Sign, um, said, no, nah, I just cannot be. It was, became one of the most important cases in the Project Sign files. And now we have this, this case from 1968 that shows us that people can be confused by that sort of thing. So I think the Zon 4 case is very important for uh, the UFO uh, research in that respect. So you had an opportunity to talk to some of the people who had reported the um, cigar-shaped craft uh, when the Zon 4 reentered? Yes, sir. Yeah, I had probably, oh, I can't remember how many, how many reports, probably 20, 30, 40 reports that came in on the Zon 4. And uh, I think the big distinction is, is I remember from uh, whether they were satellite BK or meteors, is the meteor sightings are much shorter in duration. They have much much faster angular velocity than the satellites. The satellite might take a, a minute or two to cross the sky, where your, the meteorites are, are normally, you know, a couple seconds at, at longest. So, and and that, that, I mean, that's important when you're studying or researching, investigating UFO sightings, is the length of time something is in sight, because if you've seen it for a second or two seconds, you really don't get a good look at it. And the mind tends to fill in details that you might not observe, which is why you end up with this impression of a lighted cockpit and, and um, uh, square windows across it. And that's the thing that really struck me between Zon 4 and Charles Witted was the fact that they were talking about square portholes, square windows across it, and illustrations made of the Zon 4 by the people who thought it was something extraterrestrial drew the square windows as they did on the, with Childs Witted. So I thought that was very interesting in that respect. Did you, uh, did you get many meteor sightings? Uh, I got a number of them. You know, the, the, the vast majority of them weren't unidentified. Um, but we would get meteor sightings, and since I worked late, uh, oftentimes I would I would get to take them, and I'd just try and pass them on to to somebody who you know one of the universities maybe 
and uh, tell them, hey, you know, we had a meteor sighting here. (laughs) Well, in your in your time at Blue Book, did you get any sightings that that you thought were puzzling that um, the solutions might have been a little hinky um, or did you pretty much solve everything that came in? Uh, The one that puzzled, well, the one that I guess would have been sort of extraordinary if I hadn't solved it was there was one on the southeast, I believe Georgia, South Carolina, where a guy was driving along a highway at night and he saw this U-shaped craft came over the treetops. And according to the report, his his car stalled, his lights failed, and the radio went off and it disappeared out of sight, which, you know, taken at, at face value, uh, and it made a noise. Uh, taken at face value, there's, there's nothing that explains that, but I had written to several police departments and to several military bases in the area, and uh, I believe it was a Marine base. I, I won't swear to it, but it was one of the military bases wrote back and said, well, they didn't know what the guy had seen, but they had a low-level helicopter, night helicopter operation, and their helicopter crossed, crossed that exact spot within two minutes of when the guy said he saw it. <laughs> and it was a uh, UH-60, perhaps the one that has the uh, propellers at both ends. Well, the Marines, the Marines had a, a CH-46, I believe, which they called the Flying Banana, and the Army had the CH-47, which was the Chinook. We called it something else, which uh-huh. we cannot say on the radio. <laughs> okay. okay, but it uh, had the ro- rotors at both ends as well. That's How did you? Ex- that well, was, was close say- enough for me. You know, that uh, a low-level night operation to cross that spot within two minutes of the sighting. And I think uh, the guy reported what he honestly thought he saw, but I think that he he basically stalled out or turned off his own car and turned off the lights and radio so he could hear and see better. With that, then, unconsciously did that. He didn't realize he'd I, done I that. I believe so, yeah. And uh, I, I probably would do the same thing if, if that happened to me. I mean, it sounds like, um, you know, if you didn't have the helicopter crossing within two minutes, it would just sound like you're making up an explanation to have one made up. But, I mean, how do you account for the helicopter? And there was no report, obviously, from the, from the helicopter crew of seeing anything unusual uh, around that time. I would imagine, otherwise you'd have oh, probably no, gotten some no kind of report. report. from the, the military of having seen anything unusual whatsoever. So we've got a flight crew in the area, and they, they basically didn't see anything unusual at the, at the time. So, yeah. and, and it was a low-level night mission, so, you know, everything just fit absolutely exactly. And, and, you know, if it hadn't been for that base responding to me, I would have had to have marked that unidentified. Did you did you personally mark any unidentified? Um, I had several that were were unidentified, but not not very many. I had one that was sort of strange. Uh, was two ministers over Florida? They were flying an airplane, sort of going south, and they were over a military base somewhere in central Florida. And they said they thought somebody fired a uh, surface-to-air missile at them. And they said the light came up at them and then basically got in back of them. And uh, they, they continued to fly into Miami, I believe. It, it was Miami, I'm sure, into Miami. And the controllers 
at Miami, they said, call them on the radio and said, hey, can you check back behind you because we've got an unidentified paint back there. And they said they looked back there and couldn't find anything. They couldn't see anything. And they continued on approach and, and landed. I uh, wrote to Miami and asked them for their records for that night, whether they had seen anything unusual, tracked anything unusual, if there was any log on it. And they wrote back and said, no, they didn't have anything in the log to substantiate it. But uh, I, I uh, get one, given that it was two ministers in an airplane, and two, I have no idea what they could have seen coming up from the ground toward them, nor what the what the tower apparently painted behind them. I, I you know, I just I had no idea, so I made it unidentified. So, but but it basically turns out it's a a radar sighting and a visual sighting. So yeah. you've got instrumentality involved, and you've got two fairly reliable sources uh, saying they had seen something extremely unusual. So you did you did have you did have some unidentified cases that uh, may have a natural phenomenon or some kind of a, a, a explanation a terrestrially based explanation, but it also could be something uh, something else as well. You just don't have a good explanation for it. Yeah, and and you know I I know that people think that we debug the cases, but, but we, we didn't do that intentionally. We we. we you know, we, we just simply looked out, looked at something and said, most probably this is what it was. We didn't say, it, you know, it definitely was that. But, you know, in our, our opinion, that's what it was. In fact, is I was looking at that Minot case just a little bit in the ground sightings. And uh, in, in what I read, just in glancing over it, I, I was scratching my head saying, I wonder if some of these sightings, that they saw that night that looked so unusual, the visuals, were at garment bag hot air balloons. And instead of seeing it for 15 minutes, they saw three of them. You know, it would, because I was, you know, they would see it and it would disappear and then they'd see it again. So you might actually be seeing multiple items. And the garment bag hot air balloons, they're weird. They're, they're, uh, they're very, <laughs> yes, and and back in 1968, uh, there were a lot of people launching those garment bag hot air balloons. Uh, yeah, and that would explain, the I think, why some of those people say they saw multiple brighter lights within the light. You know, like like yes. holes, Why they saw sort of like sparks that came off and went down from the item. Uh, but I don't know why that didn't occur. Well, I, I think most of the reason it didn't occur to me at the time, either I, I looked at it and said, no, they saw it way too long for a garment bag caught a balloon, or or uh, that uh, I thought they could see the stars. Now, I, I, I did see in one of those, one of those write-ups, they said, no, you couldn't see the stars that night. But uh, Well, I, I hate uh, to interrupt uh, you <laughs> again, okay. but we're running out of time. This has been absolutely fascinating, uh, getting a look at the inside of Project Blue Book. For those of you who would like more information about this, uh, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and we will have more information available for you. And we will return in about 167 hours with another guest talking about things from a different perspective. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>